Hey everybody, this is Stephen Stacks. This is Wesley Spears Newsom. And we hope you enjoy this uh, special live Q&A episode of Inhospitable. Stephen Stacks, and welcome everybody to this special live episode of Inhospitable. Inhospitable tells the story of Jill Bikindu, a member of our faith community who was trapped and deported by ICE. Jill Bikindu came to the United States legally and applied for asylum with a well-founded fear of political persecution in his home country. After living under a temporary status for a decade, in 2018, ICE trapped Jill while he was complying with their appointment schedule. Despite assurances to the contrary, ICE incarcerated Jill and put him on the fast track for deportation. While in ICE custody, he was hospitalized three times and denied his basic medical needs. After his potentially lethal stay at a private prison contracted with ICE called Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, Jill was transferred to the Atlanta City Detention Center, where he faced imminent deportation. We are here taping at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina, with folks from our church and the community who are interested in engaging with the podcast and learning more about Jill's story. So before we get into some uh, question and answer, we're going to set the tone with some brief reflections from one of Jill's friends, Susan Beck. Here's Susan. I met Jill's through our Sunday school class. Um, he came and, and was a regular member um, in our class. And at some point, he was between cars. And so we rode to church together a few times. And that's when I got to talk to him a little bit. And one of our first conversations was about the Raleigh bus system. Um, he had that thing figured out because he, he would use the bus system to get to work, to get home, and... Um, I don't know, being directionally challenged, that impressed me quite a bit. Um, and then later we figured out that um, we had a common professional interest. I work at a pharmaceutical company, and he was looking for a manufacturing job in the biotech industry. And so we would have conversations about different job opportunities and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, Gilles is a, is a cool guy. Um, he's really smart, he's resourceful, he is a really strong advocate for himself, which I think is why he has been so successful, he was so successful here, um, and why I think he will continue to be successful no matter what curveball life throws him. Um, he, he's a strong guy, and he's a good friend. Thanks, Susan. 
So Wes and I wanted to, to start out with a question that uh, we get a lot, um, and we especially get a lot online uh, with people responding to the podcast. Um, but I think it's also a question that just there's a lot of confusion about in general. So we wanted to start out with that one, and then we'll get into some of the questions that you all posed. Um, so that question is, wasn't ICE just doing their job? Wasn't Jill here illegally? Um, and people pose that question in less friendly ways than that. But that, that is the crux of, of the question. I'm going to let Wes respond to it first. Yeah, one of the things, one of the questions we ask everybody we talk to on the podcast is what misconceptions do you think people have about the immigration system in the United States? And this question actually comes up a lot there, too, because people wonder, well, like, surely there was some kind of law that ICE was following that made all of this happen, right? Like, there's a system in how this works. And it's actually very kind of cloudy how immigration statuses work in the United States. So Jill, as you heard in episode two, came to the United States on an educational visa. Um, he was going to partake in a program at Columbia University and that was fully legitimate. He had all the documentations for it and he was enrolled at Columbia. He had orientation on his calendar, all those things. And when he got here, that's when, if you listen to that episode, um, you know that the Congolese government pulled the funding for him to participate in that program. So he wasn't able to participate in that program. So Jill entered the country then completely legally. Um, there was nothing about his entrance to the country that was illegal or untoward or anything like that. And it was once he overstayed that visa, which is what happens when you're here on a visa and the conditions for that visa kind of go away. That's, that's called overstaying. Um, when he wasn't able to take the course at Columbia, that is when he was ordered first to be deported. But that order of deportation was overridden by the immigration system itself, which said, we're going to place you under the order of supervision that we learned about in episode one, where he was allowed to live and to work and to have temporary legal status in the United States. So there was no point at which Jill was illegal, as some people like to say. There was no point at which he was even undocumented. So... It was only when the government decided that they wanted to deport Jill that Jill was going to be deported. There wasn't like a law saying that ICE had to do this. Um, the extent to which ICE had to do this was when President Trump signed the executive order that more or less eliminated the ability of ICE to show discretion in who they deported and didn't deport. Um, and eliminating that discretion is what led to Jill not having his order of supervision anymore. So at no point was there any illegal status involved. Right, and, and, and Jill's story connects with um, a lot of the stories that we're kind of hearing prominently in the news right now about asylum seekers, which is the one step that you um, didn't talk about um, a minute ago, which is when the educational funding is, was pulled for Jill, that is when, and, and at the same time, he was bribed <laughs> to perjure himself. Um, 
about the th- the event that you heard about in episode two. Um, that is when he applied for asylum and was denied. And it was at that point that the initial order of deportation was issued after his asylum claim was denied and the appeal was also denied. Um, the the other thing that, that Wes just touched on that I think is important to highlight is, is uh, one of the things I... Um, you know, that struck me as I was doing interviews, especially with the immigration attorneys, is um, the, the level to which discretion has been removed from immigration law enforcement uh, currently. So as Hans Lenartz explains in, in the first episode, in any kind of law enforcement, there, there is discretion, uh, and we might use the term mercy as Christian folk, there's discretion that those uh, law enforcement officers are allowed to use with regard to how they enforce the law. So, for instance, you get pulled over by a state trooper. You know, they could enforce the law to its fullest extent every time they pull somebody over, which is not what happens, as, as we all know. Sometimes you get a warning. Sometimes you go to court and you get it down from 20 miles an hour over to six or whatever, you know. So there, there are, there's all these you know, discretionary things about the criminal justice system that have been completely removed in our current immigration climate. There is no mercy, no discretion being allowed. Um, and some, some folk in immigration enforcement are happy about that, but a lot of people's hands are tied. No matter whether you're happy about it or not, your hands are tied right now. Um. Some of us were just wondering about uh, Jill's current status, you know, medically, financially. Does he have a job now? Um, is there any chance he could leave if not come back here, another country? Yeah, so we communicate with Jill on a regular basis, as many people in our church also do. And um, the, the easiest one to answer is the job one. Um, he does not have a job because unemployment in the Republic of Congo is extraordinarily high. And he is past the retirement age in the Republic of Congo. So it's nearly impossible to get a job um, when unemployment is that high and you're past retirement age. Um, so there's no... Um, there's no real way for him to make a new career, kind of to support himself in the Congo. Um, financially, the church, Greenwood Forest Baptist Church, is supporting Jill every month. Um, we send him a certain amount of money that every month. That was determined in conjunction with him last year of what he would need to live in Brazzaville. And he gets that every time. And when he needs additional things beyond um, the stipend that we send him every month. There's this fund called the Missions Assistance Fund that was built um, in the wake of this situation to help church members in dire financial straits like Jill, and that helps to alleviate any of those needs. Um, like he recently, we're working through right now what it would take to get him a computer and some of the books that he left behind here when he was deported. Um, so we work on those things kind of at a, as an, on an ad hoc basis with him. Um, medically, it's very complicated. 
Um, you learned a little bit about his medical conditions in episode three and how the shortcomings of ICE detention facilities resulted in hospitalizations. It was because he has so many of these different medical conditions that they, they interface in ways that are very complicated. And he's on a drug regimen to deal with his conditions in the Congo, but it is not as up-to-date as the one in the United States. So it is not designed to deal with the exact matrix of conditions that he has. Um, so we don't know the, the long-term damage that regimen can do to his body um, while he was perfectly fine in the United States because his doctor modified all of the, the dosages and it was all customized to him to make sure that none of the medicines would adversely affect him, but um, that's not possible in the Congo. So he right now um, tells us that he's mostly fine. Um, but he has been hospitalized, we know, at least once in the Republic of Congo, from what he's told me. Yeah, um, to respond to the last part of that question, which I think was about, is there any hope that he could get out? Um, that's also complicated, like everything uh, in this story. Um, recently, we thought he might have figured out a way uh, that didn't work, but he's, as, as Susan said, he's a very resourceful person, um, and he's always, I mean, we, we are doing what we can here to try and figure out, well, what if you, you know, what if you did this, what if you did this? From everything we've looked into, you know, Canada's not a great option um, because uh, their, uh, their system is merit-based, um, and Jill is, you know, basically retired and has medical conditions. Um, and so that's probably not gonna happen unless uh, there was some little asylum loophole we could work, uh, which will take a while, of course. Um, so we're, he's, he's actually his best advocate and he is working on options that we will support, um, whatever he figures out, and, and figure out how to get him somewhere that's better for him and his health. I have a kind of a statement leading up to a two-part question. You answered a little bit of it with just what you said, but I know going into this whole process, I now realized how ignorant I was of the whole immigration process and how um, terribly we treat immigrants. Like, I, I really didn't realize how insulated I was from this issue. So to have experienced it and then to have been part of the crisis team we formed at the church that was the staff kind of led along with deacons and other members that we met weekly to try to figure out how do we deal with this, what can we do. Um, I just one a feeling of, of hopelessness about the process. Uh, one certainly gave great energy to wanting to change the system, and I, I know there there are things I can do there in my involvement in, in uh, the politics of the country and voting and other talking to my representatives, but th there certainly is a, a harsh feeling of hopelessness in the process, too, of just how we really aren't, um, we're very susceptible to the same evils that have, have happened over and over again. And so that leads me kind of my question, one of which I think I know the answer. Is there any, the first is, is there any reasonable hope that Geo could ever return to the U.S.? And if, if probably not, then... Um, is there a chance 
as resourceful as Gilles is, are there other countries that where he could go or a place he could be safe long term? Like what, what practically could we do there? Yeah, to touch on um, the feeling of hopelessness first, one of the things that I think is important for all of us um, in our in our community and kind of those across the country and across the world who are dissatisfied with the way things are is finding a way to reclaim um, what it means to be angry. Um, that we're often taught that that anger is bad, um, that anger is not something that we should feel, but but anger is actually sometimes the only thing that will motivate us to do something. Um, so all of the immigration advocates that we've talked to talk about the necessity of educating ourselves and others about what's going on, and that's an important way to confront hopelessness, and, and I think we need to do that and then um, get angry about it. Um, because unless we're angry enough to do something about it, nothing is going to happen. Um, to the second part of the question about returning to the United States, the way that immigration laws are structured, that's very doubtful, um, that he would ever be able to return here legally, um, because we haven't changed anything fundamentally in immigration law in the United States for decades, because there's such an impasse between the people of different political persuasions in this country that there's, there's the middle ground disappeared a long, long time ago. Um, of the way to get comprehensive immigration reform done. Um, so unless something dramatically changes through Congress, that will, that will be unlikely. Um, as to getting somewhere else in the world, the other the thing I would highlight that's important about that is to realize we are not the only country right now that is suffering from a resurgence of xenophobia and the, the fear of foreigners, that this is widespread, particularly throughout the Western world. And it is, it is a transnational movement that is opposed to the free movement of peoples throughout the world. And that used to be a stated value um, that lots of countries of the world shared, especially after World War II. And that consensus has dissolved among the Western countries. And it would be really important, I think, for those countries to develop a, an immigrant-friendly attitude um, like the one that, that emerged in some populations in the 20th century. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is, um, you know, if Jill were to try to come back to the United States, the process would be, first of all, he, I don't know if he's on a five, a 10, or a 20-year ban. When you get deported, you are not allowed to apply for reentry for a certain number of years, and they determine how many years that is based on, I'm not sure what criteria, but um, you, I think most people are on a 10-year ban. Um, so he would have to wait 10 years, and then he would have to apply basically for the lottery um, it would be the only way, and I'm not even sure if, if once you've been deported, if you're even eligible for that. Um, the only other, you know, extreme Hail Mary that we tried to float with uh, Representative Price and Senator Tillis um, is a private bill. Um, so that's happened. I don't know if it's ever happened. It's happened once or twice, uh, uh, but not anytime recently. But uh, you can introduce a bill into the into Congress that says you want to give citizenship to this specific person. And both houses of Congress have to pass it and the president has to sign it.
How involved was Brett Carter in Jills' case as, and as an expert in Congolese history, what did he advise? Good question. Um, first of all, Brett, if you're listening, you're a fantastic person. Um, <laughs> Brett Carter is a professor at the University of Southern California, an expert in Congolese history, and was wonderful throughout this process. When we were looking at trying to um, reopen the asylum case, that was when I was introduced to Brett Carter by at least three people that I reached out to across the country who are immigration advocates. They all told me Brett Carter is the person you need to talk to if you want to do anything about the Republic of Congo or know anything about the Republic of Congo. Um, so he has done more than 30, he's testified in more than 30 asylum cases um, having to do with Congolese people within the past several years. And um, he was ready to do that for us, um, but we were denied the possibility to reopen Jill's asylum case while he was here, so ultimately we didn't get to do that work. Um, Dr. Carter was, however, um, very enthusiastic about participating in this project, as you heard him talk about in episode two. And um, I know I learned so much um, from what he had to say. And we couldn't even use um, all of the golden material he gave us um, in, a, in a good interview that we had with him. Um, so yeah, he was involved in a lot of that process, but ultimately we weren't able to use him as a consult on an asylum case because we weren't allowed to reopen Jill's asylum case. Was, and the reason why we weren't allowed to reopen it was because it had just, it had been open for 10, or closed for 10 years, right? And there's a 10 year, um, a rule about that time length. It had just ended, so we had run out of time. You have 10 years to go back and appeal an asylum case. Um, and right before Joel came to us in October, that window had closed. Um, another thing I'll say uh, about the, the hopelessness question we had earlier is that one thing um, that I think we all experienced throughout this process was that um, there are people, amazing people like Brett Carter out there and, and uh, Jill's doctor, um, who are willing to, to you know, do stuff for free and help. So there's people. There's people out there doing good stuff. Um, Brett, Brett Carter is the type of person who, if, if, he, if, he, if he's testifying for you, uh, asylum cases are very um, strange because, the, you know, obviously if you're having to flee uh, your home country, um, you're not going to be able to, you know, take with you a lot of hard evidence as to why you have a credible fear of persecution. Um, so what do you present uh, in, in a court situation to, to back up your claim? It's, it's testimony. Um, and that's why the discrepancy among asylum claims being granted is so broad, because some judges are disposed to believe you and some are not. And it's completely up to their discretion. Um, but if you have somebody like Brett Carter testifying for you, it makes a huge difference. So that's why of the 30-something that he has helped on, he said Jill's was the only one that he knows of that was not granted. Um, and he was not a, a witness in Jill's initial uh, asylum case that was denied. I'm thinking back to what Wes just said about 
are doing something and how sometimes it takes our sadness and our anger to motivate us to that place. And I think another thing is education. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what it's like to actually visit the Immigration Detention Center. What's it like inside of there? We read things, but you've been there. What's it really like? It's horrible. Um, in episode three, you hear Emilcar Valencia, who works with El Refugio in Lumpkin, Georgia, outside Stewart Detention Center, talk about um, the numbness that that he kind of feels going into the detention center now, that, that he uh, has to remember that people are shocked when they walk in and how, how bad it is. And I remember we never got to go inside Stewart because Stewart had such a long process for vetting you to be able to go inside there that we had to get in touch with this um, office where the person was out of town, I think, like six days out of every week and one, three weeks out of every month. And like, um, we spent so much, we spent an inordinate amount of time just trying to get approved to get through the door in Stewart. And by the time we were approved, they'd moved him to Atlanta, to the Atlanta City Detention Center, where because it's a, a city jail, um, it was a lot easier to get in. You can, um, we had contact with someone who cleared us and got us in the same day there. And going into even just, just city jail is something that most Americans don't do. And the profound sense of isolation and alienation that inmates are put through and the people visiting them are put through is extraordinary. We were lucky to be able to be across from Jill with a piece of glass and phones to talk through, to talk to each other. In more and more prisons in the United States, you can't even do that, um, much less be in the same physical space with the person that you're trying to visit. Um, private prisons have pioneered this kind of technology where you can only talk to people via video, and the goal seems to be to cut costs and the product is inevitably further and further alienating the people inside prisons. Uh, Marty Rosenbluth, you heard talk about in episode three, who's the only immigration attorney in Lumpkin, Georgia, talk about how incarceration is a tactic that immigration and customs enforcement uses to get people to give up. Um, that the conditions inside the prisons are so bad, they try to make them bad so that they can encourage people to give up resisting um, deportation. You'll hear about in episode four, the case of 92 Somalians who were kept on a deportation flight and eventually their case went into court and they were returned to the United States, um, but they were returned to immigration prisons and a lot of them ended up set allowing deportation to happen to them because they just couldn't be in the prisons anymore. That they might have had a shot in the legal system, even a small one, but they gave up because the system was so terrible and treated them so poorly. Um, so it is, it's terrible inside immigration detention centers, and it's supposed to be that way, which is, I think, something we don't 
realize from the outside. One of the, one of the things that really struck me when we were thinking about and, and doing interviews for episode three about detention um, was when you really think about it, why, why are we putting people in detention who are in the immigration uh, system? The only reason to put someone in detention is if they're a danger to society um, or to punish them for, you know, retributively for some crime they've committed. These folks who are in immigration detention are neither a danger to society nor have they committed uh, even a felony offense. Um, you know, crossing the border illegally is a misdemeanor. Um, it's a civil misdemeanor. Um, so we, we are putting people, and the reason that you, the only logical conclusion is that who, who are, is running the detention centers that we put immigrants in? They are private prisons. So somebody's making money. And the more people that are in there, the more money they make. So that's the only reason, because there's no other logical reason to put immigrants in detention who are awaiting a trial to hear their case. What are the long-term workable solutions to the migrant amnesty issue on the southern U.S. border? This is kind of one of the, the perennial questions whenever immigration comes up because um, Jill obviously was not from Mexico or any one of the triangle countries um, that are currently the subject of immigration debate. Um, but that's often where the focus goes when talking about immigration is, is the border. Um, workable solutions, uh, the, the thing that people always propose is comprehensive immigration reform and then they don't describe what that means. Um, it is what we need. We do need an overhaul of the immigration system. We, we actually need rules, I think. Like we, we actually don't have enough rules when it comes to immigration, like there's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's only become more restrictionist over time, as Hans Lennart says in the first episode, that whenever Congress has moved to do anything about immigration in the past several decades, it's been to restrict or to like narrow the funnel. Um, nothing has been done to create pathways for people to go through. Um, we're often asked, why didn't such and such an immigrant get in line or apply to become a citizen? Um, because there isn't a line. Um, there isn't a way to apply. <laughs> and I think that could be a good place to start, <laughs> is build a line <laughs> that people can get into, because um, there's not one, um, and, and we probably could use one. Um, I, I was I was struck by the conversation this week about how there there are claims that like there's not enough room for more immigrants in our country, and I was like, there's there's plenty of room out there, <laughs> like especially like out west, there's lots of land, lots of room. Um, that's kind of why America spread west is because they wanted all that room, um, and I, I think there there are ample resources to resettle more immigrants, but we need, we need a pathway 
to do that, and no one has shown the political will to to do that. And I think creating some lines for people to get into and some ways to apply for status um, that aren't just based on asylum would be a good start. One of the things I learned when I was interviewing uh, Casey Bishop at, at UNC, um, who is an asylum law expert, uh, is that um, our current asylum law system has not really been updated since the mid 20th century. Um, and those laws were created to address, as you can imagine, very specific types of persecution. Um, think about what was happening during World War II and in the wake of World War II, what types of folk would apply for asylum in the United States. So what, what we're facing now is wholly different scenarios. Um, the people who are coming from the Triangle countries are facing a different type of credible fear um, of persecution uh, than what our laws are designed to address. So they don't fit into the boxes that the laws are trying to fit them in. So this is why it's just like you hear stories of people who you think, how could this person not be granted asylum? And the reason is because the boxes were created for the situations that were happening 70 years ago. Um, and one of Casey Bishop's arguments was that, you know, again, we, we need to think about if we want to be a place that, is, that welcomes people who are in danger in the places that they're coming from. Um, maybe we don't. But if we want to be that place, then we need to think about how to change the laws to address the types of situations that we are seeing now from the people who are coming to try and claim asylum. So what can we do now to directly help people who, who are in the U.S. in a similar situation to Jill's? The, the first thing you can do is be their friend um, and entangle your life with the lives of immigrants. Um, I talked about anger earlier. You're never going to get angry about something that doesn't affect you. Um, you're never going to be motivated enough to do something about um, something that's not concrete in your life. So I think the, the first important thing is to um, entwine the lives of you and the lives of your friends and the lives of the communities you're a part of with the lives of immigrants and the lives of immigrant communities so that their pain is your pain and their loss is your loss. Because otherwise, there is a, there will we'll never have the impetus to change anything about the way the world is. When we were talking to Amilcar in episode three, he he and Stephen have a, a brief exchange where they they point out together that Jill is not the only one, and there are so many stories just like Jill's that do not get heard and do not have communities with loudspeakers and do not have connections to representatives and senators and connections to media outlets and their stories never get told um, and they never will be told. One of, the, one of the historical stories that I've come across in doing lots of the research for this podcast 
you'll hear more about in episode four, but it's about the, the mass repatriations that happened during the Great Depression when um, the Hoover administration and others scapegoated immigrants for some of the economic troubles that were happening. And they deported almost 2 million people by some estimates to Mexico, 60% of whom were birthright American citizens. And the communities were so disconnected out there that, that people didn't know. Um, and people didn't, this is not a thing I was taught in history class. It's not a thing that is handed down in standard American history curriculum. Um, and now there's a monument that was built within the past 10 years in Los Angeles, I believe, that is dedicated to those people and is telling their stories. And California formally apologized for the role that they played in the, the kind of terrorism that was inflicted upon um, Hispanic and Latino communities during the Great Depression. And I think that's a testimony to why, like, entwining our lives is one of the most important things we can do. Yeah, um, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but James Baldwin has a quote that is something to the effect of, um, the best thing that Americans could do for themselves is to accept their history. Um, because we seem to want to just have amnesia constantly. Um, and uh, amnesia means that we reproduce the things that we've done that we should not have done constantly, over and over again. So there's this type of story that if we hadn't forgotten that that happened <laughs> and that we don't want to be like that, then maybe we'd be in a different place now. Um, the same is true of, you know, again, we, the, another thing that Wes and I were talking about earlier is um, when you start to think about deportation and how it has been used by political power back to, I mean, the, the central to the biblical story is a mass deportation. It frames everything in the Bible. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand anything about Israel's story, and you don't understand Jesus. Um, the genealogy of Jesus is structured based on that deportation. Um, and you can go through American history and see how the forced relocation of people um, is, you can tell our entire story based on it. Um, the folks that we deported from Africa built our country, right? Um, the people who were here, we deported to reservations. Um, we, you know, we sent them away from their home, right, to a different place. Uh, so we really have to, the first step has to be, we gotta learn and accept our history. And this is probably true of church too. Uh, we have to learn and accept our history before we can ever do something different. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, just accepting it would be a start. So this is a question that's not just unique to Jill's case, obviously. Um, since there's this broader problem with um, this whole attitude now we have of just keep me out, keep everybody out of your country kind of thing, um, what can we do as citizens that you, can you think of to increase the level of our public discourse and political discourse about this, not just with each other, but with others in our community, to help people see that this way of being in our world is not just unchristian, but it's also just not 
what we think of as democratic, even though obviously our what we say our ideals are and what we actually do are totally different. Um, but it seems to me that our discourse has gotten so um, everything's so either or, you know, not a lot of modern common ground. Any thoughts about what we could do to maybe improve that situation? So the first thing um, that comes to my mind is something I think Christians should do, Christians specifically should do first. Um, there is a passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul describes our salvation as Christians or Gentiles were granted amnesty so that they could be a part of the commonwealth of Israel, so that they could be a part of the kingdom of God. And they were, they were made citizens is what it, what it literally says. Um, I think Christians, to, to raise the level of dialogue they have about immigration, need to realize that unless you're Jewish, you were granted amnesty in the kingdom of God. And that should frame the way that you look at the world. Like, that obviously doesn't demand particular policy prescriptions about exactly what lane should be created for citizenship and, like, how all of that should work at a minutia level. But I, I think it should be a guide, guiding principle for Christians when considering immigration is that the New Testament itself talks about our being freely granted citizenship um, and our salvation depends on that. Um, so I, I think that should <laughs> raise the dialogue uh, for Christians. Um, for the country writ large, I think story sharing is very important. Um, linking our lives is very important. Um, Making sure that like you're not just talking in the abstract, I think is is the most important part of this. Like when we talk about immigration, we're talking about actual people. Like we're not talking about numbers on a spreadsheet or like vague cultural concepts. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I have much to add to that other than uh, I think the the mediums through which we have these conversations might participate in the simplistic way that we have the discussion. Um, it's kind of hard to have to story share and to get at the complexity of a story like Jill Bakindu's, uh, you know, on Twitter or on a talking head CNN panel. Um, so, uh, you know, another basic community organizing principle is walk away from the TV and go out in your neighborhood and have a, sit down with somebody, right? Uh, have a relational meeting, sit down with somebody for 30 minutes and find out what, what affects their life. What are they angry about? How, do, how can we build power together to change the stuff that's wrong in the world? Um, and that generally doesn't happen on cable news. So turn it off. You're not learning anything from cable news. I'm going to tell you that right now. Seriously, you're not learning anything from it. As cathartic as a Rachel Maddow or even a Tucker Carlson may be, depending on your persuasion, like it's not going to get anything done for you on either side.
When you look around you and you see so many people who probably are not legal working, you can work to make sure that they are getting a living wage. You can make sure they're not being paid under the table. You, half the people that work for you and roof houses and build your houses and clean your houses are illegals. Work to make, help make them legal. Work to make sure they're paid. You're, we're living blind in this area and we need to take care of that. And I don't know about the immigration. I can't fix that. But I can fix a lot of things on a personal level. Yeah, yeah. And that you've got to work there first. Yeah, our society doesn't function without him. That, the first realization is our society doesn't function without immigrants, whether they're documented or not. Um, it just doesn't work. And we do have Our economy doesn't function without immigrants. You're right. We would collapse without them. Exactly. We need each other. Good. Thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it.